Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. I am so excited to get to talk with one of the top New Testament scholars in the world about the reliability of the book of Acts. We're going to talk to Dr. Craig Keener in just a moment. Welcome to the last podcast episode of the year. I know it's only November, but last year I took the second half of November and the whole month of December off from blogging and podcasting, and it was so wonderful. I got to rest. I got to recharge my batteries. I actually was very inspired with blog ideas and podcast ideas while I was in that time of rest, so I'm going to do that again this year and just really focus on the time I have with my family over the holidays. Uh, I'll be around. I'm not going to go completely off social media, but I'll be pretty limited on social media. But this would be a great time if you're new to the podcast. This would be a great time to go back and catch up with any episodes that you've missed and then be ready to go in January. I've got some great ideas for blogs and podcasts already to bring you uh, in January after I'm rested and refreshed and ready to go. And I imagine I'll I'll get some inspiration for some more uh, over the break. So let's go ahead and just get right into today's interview. Uh, Today's guest is New Testament scholar, Dr. Craig Keener. He basically doesn't even need an introduction. His works are so influential in the world of New Testament scholarship. I'm just over the moon that I get to have him on the show. He's written 25 books. Uh, He's written commentaries on Galatians, Matthew, John, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans. He's written a thousand page, or really it's over a thousand pages, a book on miracles. And he's the New Testament editor for the Cultural Background Study Bible. He's written an award-winning four-volume commentary on the book of Acts. It's over 4,000 pages. His website is craigkeener.com, where you can go and sign up to receive his posts and videos and uh, check out some of his resources. Craig, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being
being on the show today. It's my, it's my privilege to be with you. Well, I've had your wife on the show before. She, she talked with us about her experience as a war refugee in her nation of Congo, and that was a powerful story. And, and that, and then the story of how the two of you met and ended up getting married is told in the book that you wrote together called Impossible Love. So before we get into some fun New Testament stuff, I want to ask you a bit about that. We, you know, we've gotten to hear from Medine, but you have a powerful story as well. So take a couple minutes and tell us your testimony? Were you, were you raised a Christian? How did you come to put your faith in Christ? I, I, I wasn't raised a Christian. And yeah, I, I, I actually thought that Christianity was not very likely because it seemed to me that 80% of the people, well, at that time, 80% of the people in the U.S. claimed to be Christian, and yet it didn't make a difference in how they lived. Mm. And I'm like, well, they don't take this seriously. Why should I take it seriously? But of course, the truth of Jesus doesn't rise or fall on the claims of his purported followers. Oh, thank God for that. Isn't that true? Yeah. And, and, and I was, I guess when I was, I mean, I was a thoroughgoing naturalistic empiricist. Um, and empiricism is great within its sphere, but I thought that everything could be explained purely naturalistically. My, my grandmother, who was Catholic, um, said, well, you know, there must be a first cause, to which I responded, well, you know, you could have an infinite regression of causes if you have infinite time and infinite space, which, of course, we don't, but that's what I thought at the time. I was like 11. So I, but when I was like 13, I started reading Plato and started thinking about the immortality of the soul. I didn't really think his argument was very convincing because he was arguing on the basis of the pre-existence of the soul and pre-existing knowledge and so on. And I didn't think that was a very good argument, but it really got me thinking like about my own existence as a conscious being, as a self. And while I thought I could naturalistically explain the rest of the universe, I couldn't explain myself. Uh, Plato helped me to explain myself, but didn't leave me an explanation for the rest of the universe because, you know, Plato, you can't trust your sense knowledge. And of course, it was with my sense knowledge that I read Plato. So <laughs> it was, you know, I was kind of confused, 13 year old. Um, <clears throat> what really made sense of everything was the gospel because it brought everything together. The idea of of a creator who designed things this way, who made us in his image, but what I was really longing for, I realized that there was no way that any of us could have immortality unless it was bestowed by somebody who was infinite. And that infinite person, if such a person existed, that would be so wonderful. But if such a person existed, why would that person care about me? Because not only was I finite, but I was selfish. I, I didn't even love that being. I just wanted to escape the prospect of death. Well, what I did, I started saying, God or whatever, if you're out there, please show me. I don't deserve it, but please show me. And one day, some fundamental Baptists stopped me on the street corner, and they asked me if I knew where I was going to go when I died. And a 45-minute conversation ensued 
in which I was arguing with them. I mean, at first I was listening to them. They, they shared with me that Jesus died for me and rose again, but they were quoting the Bible to prove it. And finally I said, look, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the Bible. Do you have any other evidence? To which they responded, uh, actually, I don't remember if they responded anything. Um, I, but, but, I, but I said, okay, if there's a God, where did the dinosaur bones come from? I thought, you know, that, that was my big thing, because the only part of the Bible I really knew at all was the idea of Genesis 1, that God created everything in seven days, and I thought there were seven literal days, you know, from a you know, reading. And so I, so I asked them, and if you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. <laughs> they said the devil put them there. That, that was their answer, that the devil put the, nope. the bones there. Yeah, they, they weren't trained in apologetics, and they certainly were not trained in paleontology. <laughs> this is a great example of why Christians need to learn apologetics yeah. and, and have better answers for those things. Yeah, that was not the ideal answer, but, uh, you know, and the, I think the one just made it up on the spot, and the, and he looked, the other one just nodded as if to back him up, but I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm done, with, I'm done with this. We'll see you guys yeah. later. I started walking off. But, you know, they, they weren't trained in paleontology, but thank God they gave me the gospel because that's what the Lord used. I mean, that, these were the only people he had out in the street, you know, so thank God they were there. Yeah. And, and, I, and I walked home so convicted by the Holy Spirit that, you know, I got home and it was like God was in the room with me. So I didn't have my empirical evidence that I wanted. Instead, I had the evidence of God's own presence in the room so strong that there was nothing. I mean, I had studied different religions. Nothing like this had ever happened to me. But I was so overwhelmed with his presence that all I could do was either accept him or reject him. And he wasn't going to let me alone until I gave him an answer. And I don't know how long it went, half an hour, 40, 45 more minutes, whatever. I, I, I fell uh, on my knees, I said, God, I don't understand how Jesus dying and Jesus rising from the dead can save me. But if that's what you say, well, then I'll believe it. I mean, what are you going to do? He's right there in the room. <laughs> I'll believe it, but God, I don't know how to be saved. So if you want to save me, you're going to have to do it yourself. Mm. And all of a sudden I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. And I jumped up real fast, scared out of my mind. <laughs> I'd never had that happen to me before, for sure. And anyway, that's the beginning of my Christian life. And how old were you and then? I, had, I, I was 15. 15. And, and I, I had to, the little kids in Sunday school knew more about the Bible than I did. And I had to, um, I had to cram to try to catch up. So what was it that then brought you from that point to becoming interested in becoming a New Testament scholar? Oh, and that's quite a few years in between. <laughs> I mean, I loved, I loved the Bible. I had just a craving for the Bible. And uh, eventually it became a craving also for the background of the Bible because, you know, cramming to catch up. <clears throat> I found that if you read 40 chapters of the Bible a day, you can read through the New Testament once a week or you can read through the Bible once every month. And after a while of doing that, I realized, first of all, that all the verses I learned, you know, as a new Christian, a lot of them were out of context. 
especially mm-hmm. the ones I learned from um, this one little Word of Faith booklet. They were all out of context. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then also, I um, soon after that, I realized that there, there also was a background that, that the author didn't have to explain. If Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he doesn't have to explain to them what the situation is because, of course, they already know it firsthand. Um, mm. And he doesn't have to explain, okay, this Greek word I'm using means this because he's writing in Greek to people who understand Greek. But, but just like we need a translation, you know, we're, we're reading. Uh, I, I realized that, you know, okay, this verse is important, that verse is important, all my Bible memory verses are important in context, but uh, what about the verses I've been ignoring, like Romans 1-7, Paul's writing this to the, the consecrated ones in Rome. If I was to take that seriously, it meant I had to take the rest of Romans seriously as a real letter to real people, um, the rest of First Corinthians, and so on. <clears throat> and so I got a craving for Bible background, and you know, after enough years of, of working on that, because I just had to understand it the right way. After enough years of working on that, I also realized, shoot, you know, I wanted to just go out and preach. I can't expect everybody to spend 10 years doing research on Bible background before they go out and do this. And that's why I wrote the, the Bible background commentary after I finished my PhD. But the PhD was kind of, I mean, it, it initially, I was going to go to Bible college for two years learn Greek and Hebrew, and that was going to be it. But at the end of two years, I felt like the Lord wanted me to go on, and I didn't know how far it was going to go. But <clears throat> I did notice one of my professors, you know, if I was called to call people back to the Word, I could do that going from one church to another. And, you know, if I did that every Sunday out of the year, there'd be 52 churches uh, a year. <laughs> but if I were, if I were, doing what my professor was doing, I could be teaching pastors who would be pastoring these churches. Mm. And eventually I realized by writing, I can make this information available to more people. And so um, in a sense, the the background was just the prolegomena. It was just, you know, it, it's not teaching the Bible directly. It's, it's making available the resources so people can teach the Bible directly. But I'm 58 now, so I have to get down to business, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can speak confidently for other apologists, and not just apologists, but uh, pastors and thinkers and other scholars who are so grateful that you did go down that road and just do the intensive work you do to bring this information to us, which actually brings us to our topic for today, the Book of Acts and its reliability, its historical reliability. I think when we're reading any book of the Bible, especially through modern eyes, there are things about each book that can be confusing. And particularly with the book of Acts, we notice that the language sometimes shifts from the third person to the first person. So it might say, we did this or that, and then back to the third person. So how do we explain that in the context of the book of Acts? Yeah. And it's interesting where the we occurs. I mean, it's it's not like if somebody were going to say, I was there, and they were going to make it up, you'd think the person would be there at the empty tomb, would be there on the day of Pentecost. But the we just appears like on stage briefly. It's not focusing on, on itself. It's just, you know, I mean, 
there's no there's no way it could be more unobtrusive than it is. If if the if the writer said uh, and uh, you know explained the we as I was there with them, that would be more obtrusive. So uh, or or like uh, you know I wasn't an eyewitness over here, but I was over here. <clears throat> the we is just like a, a we or an I in a lot of historical literature in antiquity. In fact, Sir Arthur Darby Nock, perhaps the leading classicist, a Harvard classicist of the 20th century, suggested that he could think in all of ancient historical literature in most one example of a we that didn't mean that the author was there hmm. or that the author was participating in the action of the verb. <clears throat> and that's the way we would take it if it were anything other than in the Bible. But, you know, biblical critics tend to be a lot more skeptical of their sources than do uh, other historians. Uh, well, so some of that is changing now with uh, certain extreme forms of postmodern historiography, like like there wasn't a Holocaust. There are all these individual events, but we can't put them together as that because that's a, a script or something that, uh, organize it's an interpretation yeah. so uh, but e even those extreme postmodernists don't normally deny that there were facts it's just you know the arrangement of them that they have problems with so uh, to, to say we in any other historical document would have meant that that the author was there and what's interesting is also where the we occurs the we doesn't start until Paul goes from Troas to Philippi. Uh, it's, it starts in Acts 16.10, and then it, it runs up through the Philippi narrative when Paul and Silas and presumably Timothy leave Philippi, the we stops and doesn't pick up again until chapter 20, years later, when Paul returns to Philippi. Presumably, you know, whoever... The I was in the we stayed in Philippi. And then uh, that uh, first person continues with Paul and his trip to Judea, which would provide a lot of sources for Luke's first volume, right? Uh, he could interview eyewitnesses and so on. And then in Acts 24, 27, when Paul, uh, Paul is getting ready to leave Judea, in Roman custody, he's been there for about two years, and then, uh, sorry, yeah, he's there for two years, and then in 27, 1 and 2, the we is still there with Paul when he leaves Judea. So um, the we was with Paul in Judea, in Rome, the we was with Paul for uh, about two years uh, at that point, and that's the most detailed part of Acts. It's... Uh, often considered to be based on eyewitness material. People who don't think that uh, Luke wrote Acts, who don't think that Luke is the we, still usually think that the we is an eyewitness. Mm -hmm. The idea that the, the we is, is not an eyewitness is a minority view. So some people say, well, that's just a source that Luke used. I think that that's a weak argument, though, because, uh, not that I'm against Luke using sources by any means, but I think it's a weak argument because... In Luke chapter 1, we see Luke used lots of sources, and yet he doesn't leave an I or a we in any of the other sources. Why would he become an inept editor at this point and at this point only? Right. It seems to me that 
the logical conclusion that we would take if there were any other ancient document or any other ancient historical document, because in a novel, of course, you know, I and we would be novelistic, but in a historical document, um, we would mean he was there. Yeah. And he also writes an interesting intro in the first chapter of his gospel account, the gospel according to Luke. And he writes that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Uh, what does that mean? Was was Luke an actual eyewitness to the life of Jesus? And if not, what kind of sources did he use to write his account? Yeah, the carefully investigated can also be translated to have thorough familiarity with. And initially, I thought that the author who was who was proposing that based on parallels with other ancient historical literature, <clears throat> I thought he was toning down the investigated. But when I talked with him further, I realized he actually was arguing the opposite. The thorough familiarity means personal acquaintance with. So oh. the, the author was part of the movement and probably had personal acquaintance with uh, the, the events. Now, the personal acquaintance wasn't all firsthand. Uh, he talks about material going back to eyewitnesses in verse 2. But it's, uh, it's, it's even more than just investigating. Now, historians did things a bit differently in the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. In the Western Empire, you had armchair historians. They didn't have to, they didn't have to leave Rome. You know? They were writing about Rome. They had all the records in the archives of Rome and you know, people they could interview there. Greek historians liked to travel to the sites where events occurred, interview witnesses uh, there, and so forth. Well, we've already seen that that Luke had done that. Uh, I mean, did he he at least had access to eyewitnesses, uh, some of whom are actually named in in the Book of Acts. Uh, he met James, the Lord's brother, which could explain his special infancy narrative material. He met. Um, he met Manan, an old disciple that is going back toward the beginning. He met Philip the evangelist and actually stayed with him. And of course, he traveled with Paul, so he would have heard a lot of stories that way. And if he's in Judea for up to two years, chances are you know, he's got a lot of people he can talk with. Um, also, in verse 4, it's interesting, you know, to the dedicatee of the book, Theophilus, and by the way, um, there's no example of symbolic uh, dedicatees in antiquity. So this would be a real person. But uh, he, to his dedicatee, Theophilus, he says, I'm writing these things to confirm what you already have heard. So you've already heard these things. It doesn't give Luke a lot of room to make things up. You know, you've already right. heard these things, but I was able to confirm them by checking them, checking them out. Verse 1, he speaks of many written sources before him. Most scholars think that uh, one of his written sources was Mark, and um, there's also a lot of material he shares with Matthew, which is probably another another source, the, the, the shared material. Uh, but he says many, so it wasn't even just those two. <clears throat> and these are written sources, plus he's got uh, oral sources. In, in verse 2, he speaks of um, material that was handed down from the eyewitnesses. And the Greek word that he uses for handed down, paradidomi, can mean all sorts of things. But in the context of handing down information, it could refer to very precise uh, handing down of information. It was used for uh, disciples and schools of teachers who would hand down information carefully. And, of course, whatever else Jesus 
disciples were, they were, by definition, disciples, <laughs> whose main job would be to pass on what their teacher taught them. <clears throat> In Judea, most disciples learned orally, um, so it doesn't matter whether they were literate or not, although at least the tax collector had to be literate. If we know anything about tax collectors from ancient tax records is that they were able to write, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, at least, you know, basic, basically, I mean, not necessarily something in multi-volume history, but they could, they could sure keep records. Uh, but uh, um, also what he says about the, um, you know, being handed down, going back to the eyewitnesses, historians really liked to get things from the horse's mouth. Uh, they liked to get things from the eyewitnesses directly. And in terms of, of how things could be passed down, now, <clears throat> we all know that our memories are imperfect, um, as an absent-minded professor, I am particularly aware of, of this. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go from one room to another, and I'll get to the other and say, mm, what did I come here to get? Uh, but, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, you may not remember what you had for lunch last Tuesday or, or something, unless you eat the same thing every day. But the things that are important to us, we remember a lot of those. Now, after five years, uh, memory studies show that about half of those things that we consider really, really important, we still remember. Uh, but from what we can tell from long-range memory studies, which are fewer, but if you remember it after five years, the learning curve, uh, the, 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 the forgetting curve levels off. So if you remember it after five years, you'll probably remember it after 30 years, after 40 years. And so... Uh, you know, you don't have to remember that many things to fill a gospel. You know, you've been with Jesus for one year, for three years, whatever. You know, <clears throat> after a while, you may you may stop paying attention. Somebody got raised from the dead. Great. That happened yesterday, too. Or, or you know, somebody got healed of blindness. But the first few you're going to pay attention to, or the really, the really dramatic ones that you're probably going to pay attention to. And as far as teachings... Education everywhere in antiquity, Jewish education, but also Gentile education, was based on memorization at the, at the most fundamental level, the most basic level. And so um, people would be memorizing entire passages from, from epic poetry or uh, certainly from the Torah in, in uh, Jewish contexts. Uh, Josephus tells us about that. We have all, just all sorts of documentation on this. And so... Uh, in terms of learning what a teacher taught, that was the disciples' main responsibility, and then propagating it afterwards. And if you were part of a, a school of, of a sage, and disciples who who did that, uh, you know, if a disciple ended up disagreeing with the teacher, they still wouldn't want to misrepresent the teacher and make make the teacher say what they said. They just you know go teach something else and say, well, my teacher taught this, I don't agree with it, but that's what he taught. Um, in the case of, of Jesus' disciples, people learned by repetition, and especially with aphorisms or proverbs, uh, like a lot of Jesus' short sayings, they would repeat them over and over to try to get them into roughly verbatim memory, which is what you have to do if you want it in verbatim. Uh, other things wouldn't have to be in verbatim memory. Parables, you could you could tell in your, in your own words. You just have to get the, the storyline right and, and the punchline right. At the end, so the disciples presumably would have remembered these things, 
And what would they have taught? Some people say, well, the disciples weren't, weren't literate, they weren't trained. Hey, if they weren't trained in anything else, then, then they didn't have much else to teach except what Jesus taught them, right? <laughs> so so they, they're, they're, uh, they're the leaders of the church. They're the ones everybody looks to. We know that they remain the leaders of the church for decades because in Paul's undisputed letters, like in Galatians chapter 1, he specifically names them. And in Galatians 2, names uh, Peter and John and also James, the brother of the Lord, as, as the leaders, the top leaders in the church in Jerusalem. He mentions the 12 in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So he's got, uh, you know, these are the people everybody looks to. And why did they look to them? Because they've been with Jesus. They were appointed by Jesus. And so, and you know, it just would make no sense for people to go making up things uh, while the eyewitnesses were alive, while the eyewitnesses were, were in the, the highest positions of authority in the church. I mean, every, everywhere else where we know about oral tradition, people look to those who are most expert in the tradition, who are passing these things down. And in the case of the Gospels, we're not even talking about oral tradition. We're talking about oral history. Uh, oral historiography speaks of the time within living memory. You know, after that, you've got a uh, a crisis, well, even even after maybe 40 years, you've got a crisis of memory as eyewitnesses start to die out. So you have uh, people starting to write things down uh, normally. But it doesn't even get to oral tradition. It's still in the period of living memory where there are eyewitnesses or people who knew them. I mean, in the early second century, you have Papias who actually knew some of the first century eyewitnesses and, and talks about the, the origins of, of some of the the gospel materials. So, um, anyway. Well, and that really makes a lot of sense, because essentially what you're saying is that if Luke just made all of this stuff up, then the people that were there, the people that were the actual eyewitnesses, would, ha- would, have, would have been able to say, no, that didn't happen. They would have been able to refute it. Yeah, exactly. It's like when Josephus uh, is, is um, making his life, uh, his autobiography, and complains that some people have, have argued against him. And he says, yeah, they waited until some of the other witnesses died. Mm-hmm. You know, I said these things in, in my war and antiquities while the witnesses were still alive. And look, hey, I, I, I dedicated this book to uh, these people who were there. They know it. So there's some of the eyewitnesses still alive and they can attest. Now, that doesn't mean Josephus was right on everything, but he, yeah. you know, He's he's expecting that he's close enough to the truth that the eyewitnesses are going to back him up. The other eyewitnesses. Well, we're going to jump right back in with Dr. Craig Keener in just a moment, but I want to talk to you about one of our sponsors, Impact 360. Impact 360 exists to help Christian young people develop in all areas of their Christian life with apologetics, theology, community, leadership skills, and they do it all in a really fun summer camp-like environment with different experiences over the summer. Last year, I got to speak at the Propel Experience, and I'll be there again this coming summer. Right now is the early bird pricing, so if you go to impact360.org propel, you'll get $100 off. But if you also use my name as a promo code, that's ALISA, all caps, A-L-I-S-A, you'll get an additional $50 off your tuition. Now that is good until December 31st. 
Of course, this is my last podcast of the year, so this is the last time I'll be able to offer my promo code that goes alongside the early bird pricing. That early bird pricing will be done after December 31st, so please take advantage of this. I'd love to meet your high schooler next summer at Propel. All right, let's get right back into our discussion with Dr. Craig Keener on the reliability of the Book of Acts. You mentioned oral tradition and oral history. Do you think that back then people actually learned and thought in a different way than we do now? Because I'm just thinking about us modern people with all the technology we have, just thinking about a camera, you know, just this, something as simple as the invention of the camera. We don't have to remember the things we experience anymore because we take so many pictures. And then often that picture becomes our memory. And it applies to other things as well. If I'm listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning and I want to remember what the pastor's saying, I can take notes, I can write it down, or even better, I can type it into a computer. And then that's there forever if I need to recall that information. So we're not really specifically trained anymore to really remember things. And so I'm wondering, do you think there's a difference in how people thought back then as opposed to how we think now? Absolutely. I mean, I can see it as have, having taught students for a few decades. You can see the, the um, we've got this dependence on Google. And so, uh, you know, it's great to be able to Google something and, and get information firsthand. But that's not always been the case uh, in, in many cultures, especially even literate people in antiquity. If you were literate, still, you don't have to go search through a thousand scrolls to find something. So literate people memorized entire sections of uh, what their uh, literary canon was. For Greeks, it would be, you know, Homer and so on. Uh, for, for Jewish people, it would be the Torah. And uh, they would show their education by being able to, to recite these things uh, and Actually, uh, a friend from the Middle East was telling me, you know, everything in education was always based on memorization in his culture until, you know, recently. Now those skills are starting to fade in light of modern technology. Uh, the, the, brain, the brain is adaptable. It can be used for a lot of different things. It's not that we don't use our brains now. It's that we use them for different things. But in a culture where everything depends on memory, sure. And that's, that was even true here in the United States in the past. So, for example, my, my neighbor, Anna Gulick, who passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 96, she was born in 1918. Uh, wait, that's, yeah, a couple of years ago. So she was born in 1918, and she would tell me stories that she heard from her uh, parents because she said, you know, when I was young, we didn't, we didn't have TV, uh, we didn't have radio. We just sat around and on the front porch and told stories passed down in the family from generation to generation. She told me some stories going back to the 1700s, a lot of stories in the 1800s. Well, I was able to confirm some of these with Google, yes. <laughs> uh, but I was able to confirm some of this. Uh, and, and find some minor minor mistakes after a couple hundred years, uh, but mostly it was it was confirmable or it was consistent with what I could confirm, and that's a couple hundred years. Again, with the Gospels, we're talking about living memory. 
We're talking about a period when eyewitnesses were still alive or the people who directly knew the eyewitnesses were alive. And when reading any book, it's important that we know what kind of a book we're reading. It's important to know the actual genre of the book. And it's, you know, we're going to understand a history book different than we're going to understand a book of poetry. We're going to understand an instruction manual differently than we're going to understand an allegory. And so you already kind of alluded to this. You mentioned the first and second volume. Uh, But more specifically, how are Luke and Acts connected? And what would you say is the genre for those works? Yeah. Uh, and this is the genre is a really important question because you know we don't speak of the historical reliability of psalms, for example. Uh, we don't speak of the historical reliability of parables or novels. You know they're not meant to be um, have a, a correspondence with with history. On the other hand, with historiography, you you know by definition you expect it to have some some correspondence with historical events. Now. The majority of scholars today agree that the Gospels are biographies, and I have a book coming out in 2019 that's building on that, looking at what, what was the nature of ancient biography. Also, the majority of scholars see the Book of Acts as a historical monograph, and of course I build on that in my in my Acts commentary and develop that thesis in my Acts commentary. Now, uh, the problem is You've got Luke as a biography and Acts as a historical monograph. How do those fit together? You know, the majority of you scholars, but the majority of scholars would also like to say that they're both the same genre, but you can't have it both ways. Uh, so how, how does that work? But sometimes in antiquity, you would have a, um, a multi-volume history in which one of the volumes was a biography. So, uh, for example, Diodorus Siculus, an, uh, an ancient Greek historian, is writing uh, a universal history of the world, and he has a whole volume on Alexander the Great. So that volume taken by itself is biographic, but it's part of a larger history. Biography was kind of a subtype of, of history back then, so it's not surprising. Now, biography evolved. The earliest biographies or what we call biographies, um, some of us actually call them proto-biographies instead of biographies, they they were uh, kind of a, a praise of a person, it, kind of like what you give at a funeral oration, except the person was still alive. But it developed under the influence of historiography to be, you know, by the time you get to the early Roman Empire, biographies were a subtype of historiography. And historiography was often written in a biographic way. So it was written about persons, uh, especially emperors in the first century. If you look at uh, Tacitus's biography of his father-in-law, Agricola, it's, it's meant to be based on genuine information. Did he want to brag on his father-in-law? Most certainly. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you didn't have an agenda to praise the person or sometimes to tear the person down, depending on the person about whom you were writing. But it was meant to be based on information. Same with Suetonius's uh, biographies of the Twelve Caesars. Um, Josephus' autobiography, although he takes, he takes some flex, flex room uh, oh. there. Um, and, and Philo's Life of Moses, the first, the first of the two volumes of that, is written kind of like a biography of Moses, and it pretty much follows the biblical text, except adding in speeches, which historians sometimes do. That's another subject. But 
in the case of of uh, Suetonius, what I did to test his biography, I took the shortest of them. Uh, maybe that was cheating, but uh, <laughs> I took his biography of Otho. And one reason I picked Otho, besides its its length, was it's it's written about fifty years after Otho's death, so it's written within living memory. In fact, uh, Suetonius's father was a military officer who served under Otho, <laughs> so you know Suetonius has some uh, information from various sources. He mentions a few of the sources. He doesn't have to mention many of them because it's living memory and you don't have to name your sources all that many when it's, when it's that close. <clears throat> and then I took Plutarch's biography of Otho, which was written also about 50 years later. And then I took Tacitus's histories, which includes material on Otho. And then I compared them in parallel columns the way Scholars typically do, uh, or often even beginning students in Gospels classes do with the Synoptic Gospels, compared them in parallel columns, trying to see how much matched up. Now, there's no way you're talking about a novel when you've got the kind of matchup <laughs> that you've got there. I found, um, I found like 50, close to 50 correspondences between Suetonius and Plutarch and between Suetonius and Tacitus. And Suetonius, his life of Otho is only about one-fifth the length of Mark's gospel. So, you know, if we were talking about a comparable attention to detail, we would be saying we could find like 250 uh, correspondences between Mark and external history. Now, that's only where we can test Suetonius's Otho. Uh, but the assumption is, if he's using information where we can test him, Chances are he's not making up information everywhere else. He didn't know what sources were going to still be around 2,000 years later. So, <clears throat> I mean, the, the nature of biography was it was supposed to be based on historical information. Same is true with historical monographs, obviously, by definition. Um, the majority of scholars see uh, the Gospels and Acts as biographies and historical monograph, respectively, uh, partly because... You've got so much information that in the case of the Gospels, you can confirm it with the other Gospels. In the case of uh, Acts, you can confirm it with external history very often. You can also confirm it with, with Paul. Now, as for it being a novel, most ancient novels, not all of them, were romances, a feature that seems notoriously lacking in, in the Gospels and Acts. Mm. Uh, also... Novels were very rarely about historical figures. They usually were made about made-up figures. Now, there are a few exceptions to that uh, that look like, uh, <clears throat> well, they're about historical figures, but they are so exceptional. I mean, you, you take the number of those against the number of biographies, it looks like they're parodying the, oh. the genre of biography. The same way you have something like, um, uh, what's his name, Dan Brown, uh, you know, parroting uh, reality by saying, you know, this is based on facts, you know, and, you know, you go back and you check it. No, that's not true. It's a parody. Right. But but by and large, for the most part, and, and those were, I mean, the parodies were more like meant to be seen through. I mean, you're, you might laugh at them. They, you know, some people will get fooled, but um, 
but they weren't something like what you have with the Gospels. I mean, the Gospels are dead serious about their mission. The Book of Acts is dead serious about its mission. And, and nobody's going to like go to the interior of Asia Minor and research uh, out-of-the-way towns to write a novel. Novelists didn't worry about that. They, you know, things that were widely known, yeah, they'd incorporate them, and then they'd make everything else up. Their geography becomes entirely fictitious when it when it leaves the realm of what the 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 novelist knew. So, uh, and novelists, the few cases they wrote about historical figures, none of them were within living memory. Uh, at least none of the ones that have been discovered yet. So. And, and the same can be said for uh, the later Gnostic Gospels and Apocryphal Gospels. None of them are within living memory. Most of them are not even close to within living memory. I mean, the earliest one is probably the Gospel of Thomas. Um, and the, uh, the, the Apocryphal Gospels and Acts, uh, they mostly come from the heyday of novels, the late 2nd and early 3rd century. Uh, nothing wrong. I'm not against novels, but it's a different genre. Most of the Gnostic Gospels are sayings Gospels. Again, they're not biographies and not meant to be understood as biographies. Well, as we come to a close, I want to switch gears for a second and ask you a bit of an unrelated question. Uh, And it has to do with the historical Jesus. It seems like every time I am sharing non-Christian sources for the existence of Jesus, I'll get hit by an atheist or a skeptic somewhere saying that I can't use it because it comes from Josephus. And I'm sure you know the quote I'm talking about. It's uh, very controversial. It's 1863 and 64. That's the reference. You know the reference off of the top of your head? (laughs) Uh, sometimes. <laughs> I, I told you I'm an absent-minded professor. <laughs> well, that's very cool that you remembered that. Uh, and while you're here, I just wanted to get your opinion, which carries a lot of weight in the scholarship world, if if we can use that quote to make the case that Jesus existed as a historical person. Now, of course, I realize that some versions of the quote have uh, interpolations and some parts of the text are disputed, but can we use it, generally speaking, uh, for the historicity of Jesus? Oh, sure. Um, now, actually, before I do that, let me, let me just say this. I, I talked about... Uh, historiography. I didn't mention the other side of historiography. They did, it, it, with biographies and historiography, they did have some flex room to put it in their own words. They come from their own perspective um, and, and so on. So, you know, earlier I mentioned Josephus not always telling it exactly right. Uh, you know, so yeah, I, I needed to throw that in. But okay, coming back to Josephus, uh, Antiquities 1863 and 64. Now, Josephus also talks about James, the brother of the Lord, later in Antiquities, as if he's already mentioned Jesus. And also, uh, he earlier mentions John the Baptist. So if you've got John the Baptist, you know, why not? Wouldn't he mention Jesus? And he speaks of him in a similar way. <clears throat> also, it's in Josephus's style, using the same kind of wording that Josephus uses elsewhere. Also, there's been an Arabic uh, version of it that's been discovered, uh, or at least drawn attention to. Um, I, discovered isn't always the right word if it's been around for a long time, but uh, Agapius has an Arabic version of this, and it confirms pretty much what the majority of scholars thought, that Josephus actually 
said before the interpolations. You know, Christian scribes, I guess, thought they were doing a favor to honor Jesus by by making Josephus into a Christian. Some of them later on added some added some stuff. Josephus most obviously wasn't a Christian. He certainly didn't live like one. But um, <clears throat> but pretty much scholars agree on the uh, and the vast majority of scholars agree on the the basic uh, what it was before the the tampering of those scribes, and it's confirmed by the by the Arabic manuscript. Geza Vermish, uh, a Jewish scholar at Oxford, actually was one of the main scholars who, who worked on this. And he argued, yeah, this, this is authentic. Um, the mostly undisputed parts include that Jesus was a sage, a wise man, a teacher, uh, which, you know, pretty much everybody agrees with anyway. And that uh, he was a worker of paradoxa, which is a term that, a Greek term that Josephus uses elsewhere for another sage, namely the prophet Elisha, as a miracle worker. And so Geza Vermish said, okay, well, Jesus was known for working wonders and for being a sage. Now, Josephus is not going to go on and say he was a, he was Messiah. That would make Josephus into a Christian. He's not going to say Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that would also demand quite a lot of Josephus. But uh, he does uh, most likely, and this this part is uh, maybe not as universally accepted, but he does most likely also speak of uh, Jesus being done in by the authorities uh, and certainly being executed under Pilate. Now, Jesus being executed under Pilate, Tacitus, uh, talks about that in the early second century also uh, in in connection with events that happened in the, around the year 64 in Rome. Um, that's that's when uh, Roman historians are going to take Jesus seriously is when it impinges on what happens in Rome because Roman historians cared about Rome or revolts in the provinces or something like that. But even so, um, even though there were people who led revolts in Judea, uh, Tacitus doesn't mention Jewish uh, messianic figures other than Jesus. And in fact, Pilate, we know of Pilate from the New Testament. We know of him from Josephus and Philo, who are Jewish sources. We know of him from uh, an inscription. But in terms of in Rome, Pilate is mentioned only once in Roman literature because he didn't matter that much. He's yeah. mentioned only in Tacitus's uh, Annals, I think it's 1544, in connection with the execution of Jesus. It's only when Jesus' movement became an issue in Rome uh, around the year 64, uh, which is like 34 years after his execution, it's only then that Rome, uh, Roman historians considered Jesus an issue, and only then that they considered Pilate himself an issue. Uh, Suetonius uh, mentions uh, probably... Uh, this this one is again uh, not a hundred percent, but probably mentions Jesus' movement in Rome around the year forty nine. Uh, I wrote an article, a forthcoming article on this for an encyclopedia, um, and that is like within twenty years of Jesus' execution, and. You know, this is his movement at the heart of the empire already within 20 years. Paul's letters attested. I mean, if you had somebody today 
who was, um, let, let's say we're talking about a movement that started 20 years ago, and this movement is following this figure, this major figure of 20 years ago, and they're willing to take flack and persecution and so on because of their loyalty to this figure. Nobody today would say, okay, well, that, that person didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, under normal circumstances, we wouldn't say that. But that's the kind of evidence we have in the first century for followers of Jesus. I mean, starting with Paul's letters, you know, starting within 20 years, we have we have all this abundant evidence. Jesus was crucified, and 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 Jesus' followers believe he rose from the dead. And you know, they're debating whether Gentiles have to be circumcised or not. But there's no debate among his followers that he rose from the dead. There's no debate among his followers that he's Lord, and he's been exalted. You know, uh, it's just the the things people do to get around the evidence yeah. seem to me to be astonishing. And let's just come back around to that Josephus quote, and and let me ask you this really concisely. So, if you take all of the interpolations out, you have a legitimate mention of the historical Jesus from Josephus. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. Well, if anyone wants to learn more, you can go to craigkeener.com and sign up to receive his posts there or pick up one of his amazing Bible commentaries or his scholarly work on miracles. There's just so much to choose from, so much great stuff that he has contributed to the world of biblical scholarship. So Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really hope that uh, maybe you'll come back and we can talk some more. That would be great. listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com.